Welcome to the Bounty Zero X podcast. I'm your host, Angelo Adam, founder and CEO of Bounty Zero X. Bounty Zero X is a decentralized bounty hunting network powered by the BNTY token. Today is November 20th, 2018, and my guest on the show is Jason Rosentine. Jason is CEO of Portion.io. Uh, Portion uh, is a art, luxury, and cryptocurrency platform. Through Portion's smart contracts and distributed technology, art and collectibles are able to enter a free market like never before. So, Jason, tell me a little bit about Portion. Yes, and first of all, Angelo, thank you for having me on the show. I'm, I'm very excited to be here. Um, so what we're doing at Portion is we're bringing some transparency to the world of arts and collectibles. So right now, arts and collectibles, believe it or not, is the world's second most unregulated market coming right after drugs. So still on target to, to really make some advances in market size over the next couple of years. Arts and collectibles will be $2.7 trillion by the year 2026, but yet there still is not any transparency as to exactly what happened. There's still fraudulent goods being sold. There's still a, a heavy black market in the industry. And so for us at Portion, we really see a fantastic use case to take blockchain technology, which a lot of people, of course, are talking about these days, and really have a, a useful combination of this technology with a market that needs it very much. So. How did you get into the cryptocurrency space and what made you decide to start uh, working on uh, this company in particular? Yeah, so I got involved in Bitcoin mining pretty early in 2011. Uh, so I was fascinated by what Bitcoin could do for the world of financial transactions. And as a developer, I started making these prototypes, kind of looking forward to a world where beyond financial transactions, blockchain would be used for transactions of data. So with two startups under my belt already, by 2016, I developed a prototype that verified the authenticity and tracked the provenance of a Rolex watch. So essentially I took a physical, tangible good and created a digital representation that could be tracked with the blockchain technology. So whose watch was it? It was a, it was a Rolex watch and it was just my own watch that I was using for the sake of that prototype. And so you bought the watch at a, uh, a, a watch dealer, uh, a store? Bought the watch at an arts, at a, just, just a dealer right around the corner. And I pretended as if I was the manufacturer. Of course, for this to really work, and, and what we're doing is connecting with retailers and manufacturers to start the chain of provenance directly from them. But in this case, I could show that I was the owner of the watch, and I could kind of mimic the transaction coming from Rolex directly to myself. How were you able to uh, trace the transaction from the dealer to you? Well, in its early days, I was doing it all on Bitcoin. So I was ascribing some code into the op return of a Bitcoin transaction and ascribing both the retailer, a Bitcoin address, and an entity of the owner, a Bitcoin address. So with that in mind, every time the information was sent, the transaction occurs between addresses, we add some data onto it and um, keep the chain of provenance going as the physical good is sold from person to person. So that was a, a very good early test and it, it eventually became very clear that we, 
we could do this much better on the Ethereum blockchain with smart contracts. Mm-hmm. So what are the data points that you currently store uh, when you're taking a, uh, a digital collectible and uh, you know, tracing its value uh, from or tracing the ownership of that item from one person to another? For, for digital collectibles specifically, um, and for digital art, we're starting the chain right at the primary artist. So they, they you know, place the name of, of the art, they put a description in, they can add some other metadata, like medium they used or, or you know, some sort of dimensions if they thought that was important, and then send it directly you know, as a blockchain certificate to the new recipient. Now we're talking about physical goods. We take various metadata points, GPS coordinates, um, you know, the condition that the good is in. We might even add in some PDF documents verifying its authenticity or, or any other pertinent documents pertaining to that good. Let's say uh, you have the artist who creates the uh, digital good or the physical good, and the artist, uh, you know, puts it up for auction or sells it to an individual, and they they receive a, a transaction um, hash or, or some type of receipt in a way that is tied to the blockchain. And it shows that uh, payment was made from the buyer to the artist. And so what does the, the artist who receives uh, the payment need to do in order to verify to other people further down the chain? Let's say that art work or that item or that product and changes hands three or four times down the, down the road. How does that person three or four times down the road verify that the first person who created that is actually the artist and not someone else who's uh, impersonating the artist? Yes. So the artist starts the, the chain by creating the blockchain certificate. And that's really done on a pretty easy to use portal where blockchain's obfuscated. Essentially, the artist drags and drops a picture of the piece, they put the description and the name of it in, they click a button and they instantly have the blockchain certificate. And that blockchain certificate is minted from the artist to themselves at the address that corresponds to them. So down the line, if it's a piece of digital art, people who are savvy to blockchain tech or have access to more of an administrative portal will be able to see every single time that that specific good or blockchain certificate has changed hands corresponding to the Ethereum addresses. If it's a physical good, that's when the linking has to to be really solid. So we came up with these concepts of, of something called a smart tag. And the smart tag takes the physical good and allows for the placement of the tag on it in a way where it cannot be removed. So we have a layer of NFC, we have a layer of QR code, and we have a fraud-resistant foil. If the smart tag is removed from the physical piece, a um, watermark is left on it, and it cannot be re-adhered to another physical good. The QR code, the NFC, and the fraud foil all work together to prevent and to tie the physical object uh, to the transaction on the blockchain. So you can't switch out one uh, QR code or one uh, type of... uh, uh, tag on an item and move it to another item. Precisely. And additionally, the owner has the blockchain certificate simultaneously. So you have kind of those two factors that that limit the ability for people to to do any fraudulent activities. Great. So 
Uh, I want to jump now. So now we've established the, the how on a high level how the uh, concept works with uh, you know digital collectibles, transferring uh, them from one owner to the other, and then tying that uh, to the blockchain uh, so that you can trace transactions and the history of the items and their owners over time. Um, we could jump to the portion platform overall and. Uh, some of the features that uh, the portion platform supports in order to support this type of ecosystem between uh, content creators, sellers, buyers, and uh, you know, any any of the other actors in, in the ecosystem. Great. So, from a tech perspective, an artist is the same as a seller, and the only thing that that allows them to do is to create these blockchain certificates. So, from a tech perspective, we're placing them on an access list which gives them the ability to create blockchain certificates of authenticity. The seller at this point can be anybody worldwide who has um, cryptocurrency who's willing to engage in a bid-ask model on an exchange to purchase these physical and digital art and collectibles. Okay. And then so are those the only two roles in the ecosystem or are there others? Yeah, well, the, the role on the seller side is all the same. You know, it's an artist or it might be a brand or a manufacturer or a seller. But from our perspective, it, it looks exactly the same in that they're the individual who has the ability to create the certificate. So tell me about the bid-ask uh, model. So uh, if you're a seller um, and you have a, a, a bid-ask model, what does that look like when you're selling your goods through this model? Is it because you say it's an exchange? So when I think of an exchange, I think of like, uh, you know, selling, uh, I guess, fungible assets, which can be, uh, you know, any a number of people have access to a, a number of tokens, and those tokens are fungible, so that anyone can buy that same token. So how does the bid ask model apply to a non fungible marketplace? It works very similarly. It has a stock market-like feel. It, it has the dynamics that a lot of cryptocurrency enthusiasts are used to when they're when they're trading altcoins. Essentially, for, for the non-fungible token, if it's only a one-of-one, one, for instance, the artist can put up an ask at, let's say, $1,000, and a buyer can come in and, and say $800 or $900, and the artist has the ability to accept that bid. So the hope is that that creates a free market where instead of having an ascending bid, where there can be a lot of collusion, and we see that happening at auction houses like Christie's and Sotheby's, we believe this is a freer, more transparent way for, for an exchange to occur of, of these sorts of things. Yeah, so you talked a little bit about some of the downsides of the current uh, auction house model and some of the way that ways that the uh, items being sold at auction can be some of the risks involved with with actors who are purchasing items in in the auction house model. So as you mentioned, there's the concept of shill bidding mm -hmm. um, or ascending auction format, where it's, it's the price of the auction starts at let's say a hundred dollars, and that's where the bidding opens and people bid up the price, and then um, the highest bidder uh, wins the auction. Do you say that that model is uh, susceptible to artificial increases in price. Yeah, so what happens, so the first thing is that Christie's and Sotheby's sometimes make an agreement for a minimum price guarantee. And they might say, 
for this particular piece, we guarantee the seller $2 million. And if they don't hit that amount, they have to pay out the rest of it. So if it hits that 1.5 million, Sotheby's is reliable, or liable rather in this case for the other $500,000. So there are some cases, but there are some cases where shill bidding occurs, where the prices of these arts and collectibles are, are artificially increased, either because they have a minimum price guarantee or because they want to artificially increase the value of the entire series of a particular artist. Uh, then there's also the concept of items being attributed to a certain artist, or uh, but which aren't actually originals, or which are you know not actually made by that artist. So you, know, you say that you know we mentioned some of the statistics show that it's uh, the uh, the FTC is the governing body, the the Federal Trade Com- Commission, which governs you know auction fraud, and they receive over 30,000 complaints a year over these type of uh, so it's a pretty widespread issue that you know a number of people who are you know p- participating in auctions need to be aware of, and it's uh, what is your sense of how serious of an issue this is in the in the industry and some of the steps that are traditionally taken by people in this industry to uh, protect against those types of you know, risks. Yeah, I, I think that that those risks are set to change within the next five years. We see a lot of the new technology coming out, adding to transparency and decentralization. Um, it is set to change, and that's exactly what we're trying to do. Right? By making the free market, we can get rid of the shield bidding and collusion that, that oftentimes occurs. By adding in the layer of you know transparency, authenticity, provenance, we can practically guarantee that these goods are real and instead of having you know, fake things being sold and then a collusion occurring for the sale of it. So I want to jump over to uh, some of the partnerships that you've uh, made with other uh, companies in this space. So you recently teamed up with uh, Sneaker Inc., which mm-hmm. is a uh, leading media brand representative of sneaker culture. Tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about what they do. Yes, yeah, so they, they're releasing... So as you said, they're, they're leading um, culture into the world of, of sneakers, right? And as you know, that's pretty tremendous market now with $1 billion secondary sales in sneakers, and it's more of a collectible than anything at this point. So they're leading the culture there. They're connecting us with artists who do digital representations of sneakers, and it's kind of a, a street movement, and it's something that we're very interested in, in adding on to the exchange. So as part of this collaboration with them, the folks over at Sneaker Inc. had some of their artists create digital collectibles of sneakers. And how many of those, uh, how many of the sneakers called digital collectibles were created? So right now there there were seven that are created, but we have uh, a few more guys coming on before the end of the year. Mm-hmm. And um, have any of them been put up for auction yet, or are they all still owned by the creators yes some of them have been up for auction the the first artist up is his name is harsky and he's worked and collaborated with nike in the past and he's made a a few pieces that we used as the early days in our beta testing of the application Uh, you mentioned the beta testing of the application why don't we talk a little bit about how the application works like i kind of alluded to before it has stock market like dynamics 
And at this point for the beta test, we're, we're doing it only for digital art. And that's a way for us to get this decentralized exchange into um, proper functioning and optimization. It was pretty slow at the beginning because we're linking with IPFS as well, the Interplanetary File Service for, for some of the functionality to take place. Um, but we have several digital artists up. They are selling pieces and are sometimes accepting bids from people around the world. Are the digital collectibles ERC-721 tokens? No, they're not. To be honest, it's a unique token standard, and we haven't had a chance to formally name it yet. But when we are, it'll probably be like an ERC-1600 or 1700 by the time we, we make it official. And what are some of the unique uh, characteristics of this token standard compared to the, the, the other uh, token standards like 721? Yeah, so we, we built in functionality to, to connect an IPFS hash with it and also allow for the creation of, of multiple um, tokens to it. So essentially an addition size. So maybe someone wants to create an addition size of 100. And it also allows for future appending of IPFS hashes, and that might be for documents, PDFs, um, or future images that the artist might want to attach to the original piece. And where is this uh, in the process of becoming one of the official, I guess, named ERC-20 or ERC token standards? What is the process involved with uh, having that token uh, standard officially recognized or formalized? Yeah, we're very early um, in the process of getting it officially recognized, and that's because we might have to make a few tweaks and changes, but we, we fully expect to to come out in January um, and, and, and get on the GitHub where all the other ERCs are, are populating. So what is the current state of the platform? When did you guys launch the beta, and um, how many users have you guys onboarded, and how many items have been sold? and yeah, so we just launched the beta about one month and 10 days ago. Um, so we're very, very early into it. We only have about 500 collectors now who are considering beta t testers. And as for pieces sold, if I were to include the addition sizes, I'd say there are about 20 to 25 pieces sold so far. What are the upcoming plans for the next features and updates to the the beta platform that you're going to be adding over the coming weeks or months? Yeah, the next big feature immediately on my mind is physical artwork. Um, that's coming the 1st of December. Um, and then from there, we're working with this individual, Alan Kett, who's a co-founder of Complex Magazine and owner of the Winwood Walls. He'll be curating Q1 artists, and he has some really fantastic guys lined up to start putting the physical work on the platform. And what is some of the feedback that you've been receiving from the initial beta testers? Uh, what have they been telling you that you're surprised by and what they like and what they don't like? Well, it's great. I mean, they're helping a lot. For instance, one of the feedback that comes to mind was was from one of the artists, Hackatow, who said that we need to have a bio, right? The artists need to have a bio on the platform where they could add any information about themselves and, and perhaps like link to other online galleries or or their CV or something like that. So we're, we're taking in a lot of what the community says and adding these features. Another thing that the community had responded to was the efficiency. So very, very early on, 
it was kind of slow. And that's because, of course, we're using blockchain and, you know, we have to wait for the blocks to confirm. So we're figuring out ways where all those processes can happen, but in the background, right? Because this is all client-side cryptography that's going on. So it is slow, but it's really a process of us just figuring out how we can kind of make it seem as if it's not happening, even though it's happening behind the screen. Yeah, I think that that's a uh, challenge that is fairly universal in the cryptocurrency space. You know, with our platform, we've worked on you know, minimizing that type of uh, user pain point. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think just generally speaking, you know, making the blockchain experience as seamless as possible is, uh, you know, one of the important mainstream adoption factors. Uh, we have a staking interface uh, mm -hmm. for our sheriffs who review submissions. And when they review submissions, they stake tokens and then they either approve or reject the submissions, uh, depending on not whether they meet the requirements. And so that process uh, requires, you know, sending tokens to our smart contract and then uh, having those tokens released. So we've gotten a lot of user feedback uh, from them. Um, right. So hopefully we've kind of uh, improved some of the, you know, some of the issues relating to uh, making that process as seamless as possible, but it's definitely something that's uh, cool. Yeah, and I'll definitely check out what you guys did to build off and increase the efficiency because it's amazing with technology where it is today. The blockchain is so seemingly so slow, even though you know the whole point of it is instantaneous transactions. I mean, so when we get into it, we still have like you know, so like let's say like ACH takes four days, we can do it in two minutes, but the problem is the user has to sit there looking at their computer for two minutes and yeah. I, I really think that we're we're all going to get to a point within the next couple of years where people don't necessarily know they're using blockchain it's it's going to get faster it's going to get more optimized there'll be network updates on ethereum and other platforms as well i i think it's always important for for people to remember that the amount of cryptocurrency users is currently the same as internet users in the year 1994 so we have such a long way and, and such huge innovation ahead of us so let's uh, change topics and talk a little bit about the uh, token that you guys have. So the token is a security token, and it's Reg D, Reg CF, Reg S, and later Reg A plus compliant token. So mm -hmm. that means that the owners of the token uh, have a right to receive uh, dividends from the uh, fees and generated by the platform through exchange and through... Um, other uh, token mechanisms? Yeah, so security token is is very interesting because it does allow for the dividend allocation. And so what we decided to do was for all the exchange fees that occur on the platform and for physical goods, we have 10% buyer side and 10% seller side. We decided to allocate 100% of those fees pro rata to the token holders. So if you held 1% of all the Porsche tokens, you'd receive 1% of all the profits from the exchange. The second kind of utility of the Porsche token is that you can use the token itself to purchase art for a 0% fee. So it incentivizes the users to, to hold it and use it for purchases if they wish. Let's jump to the some of the features for sellers. So if I'm an artist and there are a number of other platforms out there that where I can sell my art on, uh, on which I can sell my art, 
uh, some of the benefits of using the portion platform to sell uh, my, my digital art on are that you have uh, resale royalties and patronage. Uh, so can you tell me about those features and how the, how that works? Yeah, so the, the royalties is the, the the one that artists find most interesting. Of course, there's the whole debacle at Sotheby's who recently said that they legally don't have to give the artist royalties. And there's a lot of cases where an artist sells something to another collector for a few thousand bucks and, you know, 30 years later, they're selling it for a few million dollars. Meanwhile, the artist isn't getting a piece. So that's a great use case, of course, for a smart contract where the artist can set the royalties, be it 3%, 7%, or they can even experiment with a higher percentage um, that gets logged on the smart contract. And every time that the good itself, in this case, digital or physical art, is sold to any collector, the artist is always going to get a kickback and it'll be irrefutably done on the chain. It's the resale royalties and that can be set at the time of creation of their, the time the certificate is created. And how about patronage? Is that the same thing or is that different? It's, it's, it's kind of similar, right? Because it's, it's, it's giving back to the artist. Um, th there's a couple things that we're still in brainstorming mode about patronage. Um, but it essentially comes down to being able to fulfill the requirements of an artist before sale is made. So I guess we can flesh it out a little bit. There's a concept where we can actually give an artist 20% upfront before they even sell the piece. And that's to kind of support them and, and you know, give food and, and give sustenance to the surviving artists. A Kickstarter type of crowdfunding model where artists can receive funds before in order to in, before to invest in creating the, the work can tokens change hands outside of the portion platform yes they can they can and it's it's because it's purely decentralized technology if you have the blockchain certificate representing a physical or digital good sure you can send it to your friend um unfortunately it, that can be done without having it go through the smart contract so if you did that you're really just screwing over the artist at the end of the day and so anyone the platform is open to anyone to create the digital certificate for the artwork so I'm, well I'm, actually it's not open to anyone at this point in time they, i mean it's, it's very easy to get on board but we have an access list so once we put the artist on the access list, it gives them the rights on the platform to create the blockchain certificates. And that's really only for the early days when we're in beta testing mode to make sure that something is, is to make sure that everything is functioning properly. Then you guys are also eventually planning to develop financial services. So uh, loan and financing in crypto or fiat. So that means that if I own a digital collectible that is you know worth uh, an amount of, of money, I can take a loan out against that and collateralize it and use the the asset as security for the loan. Exactly. This is what we're really excited about. This is kind of the, the vision of portion. And let's say you had a $100,000 crypto kitty. We're, we're looking forward to a point where we'll be able to take that crypto kitty and, and issue you cryptocurrency at the, on the very same day at 50% of the digital or physical good that you gave us into our possession. And of course, whatever you do with that is, is at your own discretion. Maybe you want to buy a new ICO or something. 
but we simply charge a monthly interest. And when you pay us back, you know, an interest above what we loaned, we give back the digital or physical good. And would you guys have like a, a, li- a liquidation price where if the price of that asset falls uh, a certain amount, there needs to be, uh, how do you protect against the the volatility of some of these assets? So let's say, you know, someone takes out a $100,000 loan from a, uh, on a crypto kitty, which is worth 500,000. So you have a five to one ratio of the value of the crypto kitty to the loan that's taken out. So you have some type of limits in place. And then uh, if that crypto kitty value falls to, let's say, 5,000, suddenly the $100,000 loan is secured against an asset which is worth much less. So what are the, some of the security me- mechanisms to protect against uh, the, the, the volatility of some of these assets? Yes, a lot of this will be done on a case-by-case basis. And, and because you know, most of these things are, are non-fungible, we really wouldn't know the value for the ones holding it, right? So if we got the good and it was 100000 we, we're really looking at the rest of the market to see what the value of that thing is. I guess, to be honest, that's a really good point you've brought up, and it's, for the most part, in the beginning days, it's going to be for physical good where the value of it stays more static, right? Mm-hmm. CryptoKitties, of course, you've, you've seen the range in prices of these things up to like $200,000 at this point in time. So it might be kind of a bubble there. So we might not be starting with CryptoKitties. So we might be starting with like a physical Picasso, um, and the issue is would be for the guy that we loaned the money to to be able to pay us back in time, right? So we issue about 50% of it. If you can't pay us back within whatever time frame we decided upon, we would have the right to liquidate that directly through the exchange. So it's, it's that, that sort of thing is actually done up by Christie's and Sotheby's as well. And they make a third of the revenue through that model. And so is Portion going to be issuing these loans or are, are you going to make it like a marketplace where people offering uh, offering loans uh, can, it's almost like a marketplace for anyone who's willing to, uh, you know, offer loans. Yeah. I mean, we're looking forward to a point where we can be that decentralized and, and building the support for that. But definitely in the early days, we'll be the issuer of the loans. We just had BlockFi, a company in the cryptocurrency space, which offers loans mm. uh, securitized by crypto. So I think they currently support like Ethereum and Bitcoin, you know, to back loans with. And we just had them on the podcast and they talked a little bit about their product. And so this is similar to what BlockFi is doing, um, but they have a lot of regulatory requirements that all non-bank lenders need to regulatory requirements that need to be met and licenses have you guys started looking into some of the you know licenses and are you guys going to be applying on a state you know in various states to be to get lending uh licenses yeah there's a lot of regulatory issues and compliance that we have to meet we've just started that process and there's a couple of tricks we have up our sleeve and how we can do that, but it requires us to do a lot more research and and really work much more closely 
with our council and one advisor specifically who has a lot of background in the loan space. But it's a really good point you bring up, and that's why we can't have loans today. It's because of all the regulatory hurdles that we need to jump to make it possible. So how did you get together with the other folks on your team to start this project? How did you meet each other? And tell me a little bit about that process. Yeah, so the first guy I met was my co-founder, Peter Engelman. Uh, Peter Engelman is the COO of Portion, and I met him when he was finishing up his part-time MBA at NYU. So essentially, there was a teammate hunt at a competition called the W.R. Berkeley Entrepreneurs Competition. Um, there were 270 companies, and, and Peter and I joined forces and started coming up with kind of the business model for what would eventually become Portion. Several months later, we became semifinalists. We were very pleased with the state of the product and the state of the company at that point in time, and we continued to pursue it. It wasn't until January of this year, 2018, when we had the first version of our white paper and more of a a clear vision as to exactly what we're going to do at Portion. Three months, three and a half months later, we had finished our seed round for five and a half million dollars. And the first hire to come on was Jared Robin. He is VP of growth, has a background in logistics and fashion. So he he came on very quickly with a lot of excitement that he added to the culture here at Portion. Secondly, we got our CTO, Vlad Panov, straight out of JP Morgan, um, heading a division over there, very involved with with finance there and and even some, some undercover blockchain projects that they were doing. Um, so he's a very, very, very interesting, very smart guy we have on board the team. And finally, we have Lydia Moon. Lydia Moon was the AVP marketing at Sotheby's. And her winning answer to one of our questions was that she'll make sure to do everything exactly opposite that Sotheby's does. Right? <laughs> That's one of the good uh, requirements. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Because we, we always have seen ourselves kind of like the underdogs coming in to disrupt the, the space here with what the, the current world is doing. So we have a fantastic team. Everyone uniquely fits into this puzzle from a different angle. And, you know, the culture is great. We have a beautiful office out here in Soho and, and everything is going very smoothly. So uh, the seed round that you guys uh, closed in in the, the first quarter of 2018, uh, who were some of the uh, funds and uh, companies that joined in to that? Yeah, so it was partially done by just um, private investors in the space. In total, we had 23 investors. Um, the one leading guy was the first investor at WeWork. So he's very well known in the space. He loved the project. We had just a great time with him, and he continues to help as as partner as an, an investor today. So you have just solely funded and seed around by angel uh, investors, no like VC funds or uh, hedge funds or, you know, uh, yes, companies yes, like that. Yes, that's right. We're, we're very fortunate in that regard. Nice. Roadmap has the beta application for iOS and uh, mobile uh, and Android coming up. And when do you think that is going to be uh, released? And what are the plans for the security token I guess the ICO that you're holding. Yeah, so the the plan for the mobile app is to be on Android and iOS 
by the beginning of next year, so Q1 2019. We have a fantastic partnership we formed with Siren Labs, who, who will pre-download portion onto their smartphones, their blockchain phones, before they're released. Um, so they're aiming to have 100,000 phones sold in the first year. So that will really add to our collectors and get some enthusiasm on that perspective. Um, and we roll into a, a pre-STO is what we're calling it. Uh, Pre-STO will be happening in Q1 2019 as well, around the same time where Siren launches portion on their phones. And it will be publicly downloadable by anybody on Android and iOS. Yeah, everybody. So check out portion.io. We have a beautiful website. Um, you can sign up right there. You can click the uh, beta platform in the upper right-hand corner and get started on Portion very easily. We have a really fantastic community on Telegram as well, where there's a lot of communication happening all the time. Uh, my guest on the show has been Jason Rosenstein, CEO of Portion. Uh, Jason, thank you for coming on the show. We'd love to have you on again in the future. Angelo, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for the thought-provoking questions and, and looking forward to the future. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Bounty Zero X podcast. Please remember to subscribe to our podcast below. Check out BountyZeroX.io, the number one bounty hunting platform where you can complete work and earn cryptocurrency. Please consult your professional financial investment and tax advisors before making any investment in initial coin offerings. Bounty Zero X does not provide investment or financial advice and does not endorse or recommend investment in any ICOs advertised on the Bounty Zero X podcast or website. <laughs>